Hello, I'm Jim White and welcome to It's Friday, your arts and culture guide to the weekend. Coming up, we'll be talking about this. I'll be back. And chatting to him. What do you mean PowerPoint? PowerPoint's boring. You can't use PowerPoint for comedy. How does this work? I'm wondering who on earth is paying to listen to this. Joining me to pick through the week's highlights is the Daily Mail's film critic Brian Viner, music critic Adrian Thrills, TV critic Claudia Connell, and our entertainment columnist Baz Bamigboy. But first, despite the return of James Cameron and Linda Hamilton to the franchise, Terminator Dark Fate, the movie, has disappointed at the box office. It launched just $29 million, according to studio estimates, which sounds a lot of money. But this was its first weekend, and the film cost more than $200 million to make and market. Is this a sign of the times that we're just getting a bit sick of sequels. Baz, have you seen it? I've seen it. I've seen it twice. And I, I, I liked it, except up until the moment Arnold Schwarzenegger came on. I mean, he's he's as thick and as dull as this wooden desk. <laughs> well, he is meant to be a robot. Well, Give him it, a break. He, he is indeed. And uh, he is beyond robotic. Um, he could have done with an oil change, frankly. Um, he was pretty dull. But I, I liked it. I've got to tell you, I, I'm, I, I yeah, love Lyndon Hamilton. Quite, it got quite critically well received, yet people aren't going to go and see it. I mean, you know, 29 million sounds a lot of money, but phew, for an opening weekend, that's poor. I think the problem is, is that the, the first couple of uh, Terminator movies were fun. There were three in the middle which were dull. And I think people have those in mind. And maybe there wasn't enough marketing to say, actually, this is pretty good. But Claudia... The first Terminator movie was made 35 years ago. It's got the same stars in it. Are we just getting a little bored with these ideas, these, this kind of repetitive cinema? Well, the problem that filmmakers have got is that it's, it's really hard to get bums on seats in the cinema because fewer people are going to the cinema, particularly younger people. So I'm guessing that their logic is let's appeal to the people who do go to the cinema, people over 40 who remember the first franchise, and let's, you know, make it a nostalgic trip for them. I can't believe these numbers that I'm about to tell you, but apparently it's true. There have been 14 Batman sequels, 13 Star Trek sequels. Star Wars is only a pitiful eight. I mean, we're getting fed up of it, aren't we? I think we're getting fed up with the Star Wars sequels, which is why they're ending the Star Wars run this December with the latest one. I mean, there's only so much we can handle. And frankly... Who can remember what happened in the previous instalment? <laughs> I don't know but about you, Claudia, but yeah, you I have to rewatch it before I can just see it. Kill off a really good franchise. They did it with Die Hard as well. I don't know how many Die Hards there were. They're about six in the end. And yeah, you take what starts as a really good product and just yeah, sort of just kind of squeeze well, the life out of it. Well, I think we can all agree that The Godfather Part Two was the greatest movie ever made. I so some sequels there, work. Jim, so some sequels it, work. It's a great movie. And you've got Frozen Two that opens in a couple of weeks that is, is meant to be fabulous. And that'll probably take more money than Frozen One for Disney. And again, Terminator 2, if we're going back to Terminator. But is this the issue that they eventually run out of steam? And yet, because they seem to have worked in the past, the studios keep pumping the money in. What happens is you get a 25-year-old studio executive who was brought up watching the Terminator movies, say, on TV, and he goes in and says... 
let's make another one. And so it goes on. It's a self-perpetuating thing in Hollywood. You know, it's all to do with the age of the executive and the gender, by the way. What, so men are more likely to go for a sequel? Well, Is that what well, you're saying? Well, men, men run the studios, no matter how much we would love it if women were the sort of suns and moons in Hollywood. It's the guys who run it, and they say that these big macho movies make money. Well, we know they don't, really. You're going to see an onslaught of female, quote-unquote, movies coming down the pike. I mean, Little Women, for instance, which is sort of a sequel because there have been 15 TV series and movies made about Little Women. But this one has a sort of a cool feminine vibe about it. So... I don't know whether you've seen it yet. No, I've seen the trailer and it, it does look good. It's yeah. lovely. Yeah. It's really so, nice. so, Claudia, Baz is basically blaming men. It'll all be... <laughs> <laughs> if, the, if the studios were in the charge of women, we wouldn't get sequels. Or, or do, you, do you ever like a sequel? I'm trying to think of sequels that I've seen. And, and not just sequels, you get sort of reboots, like you had the Mary Poppins reboot recently, which I think that was a disaster, that was wasn't the, it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my, please. Yeah. But mind you, uh, don't forget, uh, Claudia, we had Ghostbusters remade but with women this time. Yes, that's Flop, true. mind you. Yeah, that was a flop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's all down to sort of original stuff. There aren't enough screenwriters going around who who can turn a good script in that's original. That's the problem. But I'm not sure that's fair to blame the screenwriters, surely, Baz. I mean, it's the studio executives who just go for the same old, same old rather than taking a risk, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. But I mean, just quickly going back to the current Terminator movie, I mean, that cost, yeah, $200 million dollars a lot of that money came from China, so there wasn't that huge a risk. Disney and Paramount put in 30% of the budget. The rest of it came from the poor Chinese conglomerates. So it's going to be big in China, they hope. I mean, is that it, it what... It better we... had be. Otherwise, <laughs> someone's going to be doing a lot of watching up with chopsticks and... So <laughs> just break this down for me then, Buzz. When a studio in Hollywood is thinking about a movie, mm-hmm. if it's a big blockbuster and they want to make millions at the box office, they're not thinking about America. They're not thinking about England. They're not thinking about... Germany. They're thinking about China. They're thinking about China. And and I tell you, one of the reasons why some of those great, what I call industrial Hollywood movies are so dumb, and Jim, they are, let's understand that, is they've got to appeal not just to audiences in the West, but in the East, who, how can I say this without being offensive, whose grasp of our sort of English idioms isn't as great as it is here. So they've got to understand simple phrases, simple action. That's why, you know, all those industrial sort of big Hollywood action movies are just action. So it's action and no words. Because you don't need the any fewer tra- words, the better. Yeah, you don't need translation with action, do you? It's true, isn't it? And you've got the um, Top Gun sequel, haven't you? That's coming. Is that next year? Maverick mm. and, and Tom Cruise is apparently still a pilot. Yeah, no, he's he's about seventy-five. <laughs> <laughs> 175, actually. I've got to correct you. <laughs> but he moves well. Baz and Claudia, thank you so much thank for you. that. Now it's time for Hits and Misses, where our critics ignore the hype and tell us what they really think about the week's new releases. First up, Adrian Thrills, the Daily Mail's music critic. Adrian, what have you been listening to? Well, for me, it's been it's been a drummer's week this week, actually. Drummers making solo records. Who'd have thought it? <laughs> The first one is um, it's Taylor Hawkins, who's the drummer in the Foo Fighters, who, who you may remember are, are a band who are actually launched by a drummer who left another band. Dave Grohl obviously was in the drum stool at Nirvana, kind of went on to form the Foo Fighters. Now his drummer, Taylor Hawkins, has uh, he's launched his own band, very ironically called the Coattail Riders. I mean, they're riding on the coattails of Dave Grohl. That's the kind of drummer's sense of humour. 
drummer for you. It uh, reminds me of one of the classic drummer's jokes, actually. It's uh, what were the drummer's last words before he was fired from the band? Hey, guys, why don't we try one of my songs? <laughs> and Taylor's actually now got... And he, he's got his hands on the controls. He refutes the legitimacy of that joke and that his, his songwriting and his singing, along with his guitar playing and keyboard playing, are actually really good. And it's a really good time. It's a fun, kind of glamtastic rock and roll stroke modern grunge record. And it really rattles along... At some point down the line, I think you got confused. Think you started thinking, but I don't think you really thought it through. You've got some really interesting guests. Dave Grohl actually plays on something like 50% of the tracks and adds some really he, nice... He plays on 50%. Why, why didn't they just do a Foo Fighters well, album? I guess, I guess Dave, he's not singing, so he adds, adds guitar. And there's a few other quite interesting, unexpected guests. You know, you, you wouldn't expect the grunge drummer to be employing singers such as Chrissy Hines, who um, adds her voice to a really nice... Uh, actually, the title track, um, Get the Money, is uh, features Chrissy Hines singing, and it's a really nice rock reggae song. The country singer, Leanne Rhymes, she adds a song, which is really good, and uh, has a really lovely, kind of really poppy, queen-like song called Middle Child, which is uh, Taylor singing about his middle child, Annabelle. Obviously, as, as drummers grow old gracefully, they uh, they stop singing about the usual rock and roll pursuits and sing about their kids. And, and so it's, the coattails, Dave Grohl, still riding on the coattails of Kurt Cobain. Yeah, well, it's it's funny, isn't it? And you kind of wonder, will uh, will the drummer of Taylor's band? Go? <laughs> but the, unfortunately, the but, drummer of Taylor's band is actually Taylor. So, but are are all drummers frustrated front men? Then I mean, because um, um, uh, Roger Taylor of Queens on this as well, He's isn't on that he? As well, yeah, and uh, you know, very very good singer in his own right obviously everyone in queen could sing so uh, and well there's been a few hasn't there I, don't, I wouldn't say all of them i don't think charlie watts would uh, would kind of make he, he's very happy just sitting behind the stool isn't he but you've got don henley phil collins there's, 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 yeah they're, they're, all of them are basically hate spinal tap where the drummer was just someone who exploded in the background that's right they went spinal tap went through four or five drummers don't didn't they including one who died in a bizarre bizarre gardening accident <laughs> <laughs> um so taylor hawkins get the money should we get it hit or miss it's a glamtastic hit and, and you suggested that he wasn't the only drummer-turned-singer that you've been listening to this week. Well, the, the, the last couple of weeks have seen a, a whole... Well, not a spate of them, but at least two, in that uh, the venerable Ringo Starr has uh, released his 20th solo album. When you consider the Beatles made 12 studio albums and Ringo's now on to his 20th. It's, it's as, as always with Ringo, you could say he gets by with a little help from his friends. So there's loads of kind of famous mates kind of come along to his... He has a home studio in California that means he, he never has to be far away from his, his wife, Barbara Bach. And they... It, it's a really nice, feel-good, Ringo-ish rock and roll record and some, some very nice songs, including... There's a really lovely cover, actually, of John Lennon's Grow Old With Me, which was one of the last songs Lennon ever wrote and obviously a love song 
to Yoko and it wasn't actually released until four years after Lennon died. And what Ringo's done with that track is he's got uh, Paul McCartney playing bass and singing backing vocals. And the string arrangers very care- very cleverly incorporated a line from George Harrison's Here Comes the Sun into that track. So it's in a kind of strange way almost the Beatles reunion. It's the closest we're going to get to a Beatles reunion these days. Um, unfortunately, there's another cover on the on the album, which is, it's, is much less auspicious, which is Ringo's revisited the, the Barrett Strong song, Money, That's What I Want, which was actually on the second Beatles album. It's the final track on With the Beatles. And the Beatles version, which is, is probably the definitive version of that song, and that, fin- that includes... A brilliant, rasping John Lennon rock and roll vocal. Ringo's, I'm afraid, it leaves a lot to be desired. It's lavished with auto-tune, and it's a really poor version of a great song. Famously, John Lennon said that Ringo wasn't even the best drummer in the Beatles. Is he the best singer in the Beatles? Was it John Lennon that said that, or was it actually Jasper Carrot? Some, <laughs> Some dispute as to the authenticity of that of that joke. <laughs> I think I think it was actually a Jasper Carrot. I mean, I mean it's it's an interesting argument because obviously there's quite a lot of Beatles songs back in the USSR being one on which um, Paul McCartney plays drums. So, Adrian, Ringo Starr, hit well, it, or it miss? it pains me to say it because it's an album that has a lot to recommend it and it's Ringo and his mates having fun, but but purely on the virtue or lack of, of money, that's what I want. And then that track in particular, it's a miss. <laughs> And uh, the Daily Mail's film critic, Mr Brian Viner, what have you been watching this week? I saw uh, The Irishman. We're going to war with these people. War. Things have gotten out of hand with our friends. you got to sit down. Everybody says so. No, I'm not sitting down. I can't do it. It's what it is. What it is. I know things. They don't know I know. When you say, what have you been watching? It's what have you been slogging through? Because it is long. It is... Three and a half hours long, but um, but of course it is worth every minute because it's you know it's Scorsese and it's Pacino and it's De Niro and it's Harvey Keitel and it's Joe Pesci who we all thought had retired forever but has been summoned out of retirement to uh, you know to join his old muckers. So it's uh, and it's a it's a it's a great Scorsese gangster movie and it is well worth sitting through, but it is very long. It's not only, it's not only long, Brian. It seems to have been around forever. I mean, people have been talking about this uh, for months, haven't they? Is this just the anticipation yeah. of it? I think people are genuinely excited about it, and why not? You know, it's um, it, it's a it's a Netflix film. Netflix have have, uh, have put a lot of money into it, and that's partly because Scorsese decided to use this youthification technology as its grandly known, and it's basically using sort of computer effects, CGI, to to make all these actors look younger. So we follow these characters through about five or six decades. Uh, De Niro, from from uh, about the age of 20, his character Frank Sheeran, who is the Irishman of the title, uh, right the way through until his sort of 70s or 80s when he's sitting in a care home reminiscing. Uh, one of the things that I've read about this uh, film is that it's all a fantasy. Although this is meant to be a true story, Sharon made it all up. Does it hang together in your view? Do you, do you, is it plausible when you're watching it? Oh, yes, very, very much so. I mean, I, well, I haven't heard that, actually. Um, but I know it's based on the book. Uh, Sharon died in 2003. 
Uh, and he claimed to have been responsible for the death of Jimmy Hoffa, who was the, this great, charismatic, very powerful union leader who led the Teamsters Union in the, in the States in the 60s and 70s and went missing, never to be found, in 1975. Uh, now, it's always been a mystery. We've always suspected that it was the mob in, in some shape or form who got rid of him. And uh, as I say, he's never been found. But... Uh, this guy Sheeran said it was uh, he was responsible, which is interesting because he was also um, he was Hoffa's sort of minder, you know, his his close friend and minder, and that that bit of it is is very much true. So, um, you know, even even if even if it's not true, even if it doesn't totally follow uh, facts, it's still a fascinating movie, and actually it dips in and out of of uh, politics as well because. According to this film, um, if we're to believe this, it was the mob who got rid of John F. Kennedy because they felt betrayed by him, having helped him to get elected. Uh, and he then appointed his brother Robert as attorney general, and he, he instituted this great crackdown on the mob. So, uh, so they were sort of getting back at him by um, having him bumped off. Uh, and Brian, three and a half hours long, but is it a hit or is it a miss? Oh, without any... I mean, Scorsese, De Niro, Pesci, Pacino, it's got to be a hit. And what else have you been watching, Brian? Well, I have sat through a film that was an hour shorter but seemed about eight hours longer, (laughs) and that is Midway, uh, and it is a film by Roland Emmerich, the uh, German director who who, who made Independence Day and Godzilla and all those disaster movies. Uh, but Midway is about the Battle of Midway, which was the sort of pivotal battle in the Pacific during the Second World War. Who's this kid? He didn't think he could cut it. I figured it was just the usual jitters. I take him under my wing. He was wanting to be scared. There was a film of the same name made in 1976, and it was incredibly starry. It had Charlton Heston and Henry Fonda and Ronald Wagner and uh, Robert Mitchum was in it. Um, well, this is a, a rather a pale shadow on the starry front. It's got Woody Harrelson, and that's about it. But uh, uh, Woody Harrelson, I might add, with, a, with a, an extravagant coiffure, which is a bit, um, <laughs> little bit... Yes, unsettling. Um, but anyway, it's about, I mean, it's a full throttle, very old fashioned war film, reliant very heavily on CGI. Um, and I have to say, not particularly great CGI. Some of it, you really can see the joins. Um, but it, oh my goodness me, it's a slog. You know, you, you sit there and it's, it's sort of a history lesson, really, but a history lesson that I'm not sure any of us particularly need. Uh, but the script is cliched, you know, all the characters are talking about sitting the hell down and standing the hell up and getting the hell in and getting the hell out. And you begin to tire of that pretty quickly. Um, it's got a couple of Brits in it, Luke Evans and Ed Screen, good British actors. They play sort of US pilots who are incredibly heroic. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, it might play well in Peoria, as they say, you know, in the heartland of, of America. Uh, but... Um, but, you know, I found it I found it dull, really dull. I have an idea where you're going on this one. Uh, is this I, worth so going I, to, or yeah. don't go the hell anywhere near it? Don't go the hell anywhere near it. It is a miss. 
That's brilliant, Brian. Thank you very much. Now you know what's worth seeing and what tickets aren't worth the paper they're printed on. Many thanks, Brian, Adrian and Baz. Now let's meet this week's guest, the comedian, author and television presenter, Dave Gorman. Gorman shot to fame with shows such as Are You Dave Gorman? and Dave Gorman's Google Whack Adventure and remains a fixture of the TV schedules with a series of oddball ideas. Afternoon, Dave. So, uh, remind us of the name of your tour. Uh, well, I'm on tour with a show called um, With Great PowerPoint Comes Great Responsibility Point, which I know will, will invoke two different reactions in people. People who've seen me before go, oh, good, PowerPoint, we like it when you do that. <laughs> and people who haven't seen me before go, what do you mean, PowerPoint? PowerPoint's boring. You can't use PowerPoint for comedy. How does this work? And they get a bit sort of flustered and confused by it all. Um, to those people, I say, look, it's really easy to deal with. If I told you it's a comedy show in which the person on stage is using videos and pictures, you go, all right, yeah, I can see how that helps comedy. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. Fine. And that's all it is. And the fact that you've seen other people be boring with PowerPoint before is not PowerPoint's fault. The question I've got for you, though, Dave, is, is not that. It's uh, with great PowerPoint comes great responsibility point. What, what's the additional yeah. point about? What's the point of the additional point? The point of the additional point is if it said with great PowerPoint comes great responsibility, it wouldn't be a very complete phrase. So it just it highlights that you've added a point to PowerPoint by adding a point to responsibility. There you go. I mean, it's nearly as simple as that. When the audience comes along to uh, watch you and you have fans and they meet you at the stage door, for most comedians, it's a quick selfie and a hello and perhaps tell them a few jokes. Are they picking you up on the details? Do your fans come out and say, ah, now it's interesting you said that, but should you have said this, that, this? (laughs) They don't, actually. There is an alarming amount. It's almost like cosplay, people wearing check shirts. Um, in some kind of weird homage to me. So it's just a very polite, genial queue of people. The weirdest thing, there's been a couple of things that have been odd in recent times. They sell books and things. So a lot of what I'm doing when I meet and greet afterwards is signing books for people. And people never tell you how to spell their name. A Claire will just say Claire, and they never say whether they've got an I in the middle and me on the end or whatever. I was doing a show um, a little while ago, and there were two people, and the guy put the book in front of me, and there was quite a long queue, and it was going quite quickly. And I said, do you want this dedicated? Yeah, what the name? He said, Ian. I said, one eye or two. And there was a really horrible pregnant pause, and I looked up, and Ian, who I just asked if he had one eye or two, had an eye patch. <gasps> and I literally had stumbled across an Ian who had one eye. <sighs> Um, How did and that? he was absolutely fine with it? He, you know, that's the reality. He knows what I'm saying. It's all the people behind him who have the moment of thinking, "Is this awful?" And it's not awful; it's fine. But that was a moment and a half. Brilliant! Thank you so much for joining us, Dave, and um, I look forward to seeing you on stage. it's back to the hits and misses this time what's coming up on tv with claudia connell the daily mail's tv critic um claudia what should we be watching coming up well i'm going to start with talking about the crown um it's not back on netflix until the 17th of november but um uh, press have seen some of the previews and some of the cast are on graham norton this evening talking about it this country was still great when i came to the throne all that's happened on my watch is the place has fallen apart you cannot flinch fallen apart if we say it has 
That's the thing about the monarchy. We paper over the cracks. There's a lot of um, excitement and nerves about it as well because there's been a complete cast change in season three. So Olivia... And and does it work from what you've seen? Well, I saw... saw, I've seen the first two episodes. I know Baz has seen seen all of them. Um, the, The first episode I saw... I didn't like Olivia Colman at all. I think just because Claire Foy was so good in the role and a lot of people have wondered why they couldn't just age up the first cast with, with makeup. Um, she, she, it seemed to me that she was... Where, where does it come in then? What, what era are we talking we, about? It was uh, starting 1964. So uh, Winston Churchill has died, Harold Wilson's become Prime Minister and it starts with the Anthony Blunt scandal in episode one. Um, but by episode two, I'd, I'd got used to Olivia Colman. And Helena Bowman Carter is in as Princess Margaret, and she's really good. Um, and Baz, the privilege, the man who has seen it all. Um, is it worth our while sticking with it? Yes, it is. I mean, I, I agree with Claudia. I, it did throw me a little bit seeing Olivia Coleman as, as the new queen. But, um, yeah, as it goes on, it she did. I'm not saying she did get better, but one got more used to her. And the reason they changed the cast is that Netflix, by the way, is a subscription set up. So they're banking on people thinking... Oh, I wonder. I wonder what Olivia Coleman's going to be like. How will she compare to to Claire Foy? So that's why they do it. They hope they get more people to. So it's a hype uh, thing. It's, good, good, of course, for pretty... middle-aged actresses that they didn't go for a kind of ageification uh, of yeah. Claire Foy. Um, one thing I really enjoyed about The Crown was that it gave you a kind of um, modern history lesson. Um, I don't know how much of it is true, but are, are we on that roll now? Are we, is it again, you know, kind of the stories of prime ministers, the stories yeah. of c- political crises, as much as what's going on in the Queen's bedroom? Yeah, it it is good from that point of view. I'm sure lots of people watch it and then go away and Google to see what really happened. Um, like, for example, this explores uh, the Queen's relationship with Harold Wilson and they apparently got along famously and the, um, the the Sir Anthony Blunt incident, which a lot of people don't know. And also, I wasn't... What is this Anthony Blunt? Because he was her master of pictures, wasn't Yes, he? yes. He was the art... What is it? He, he was the curator yeah. of art at the, mm. at the palace. And of course, he was a Soviet mole and he was discovered. I mean, in the first episode, not to give too much away, but the Queen thinks that it's Howard Wilson who is the Soviet mole. Ah. And then it has to be explained to her that it's actually her in the palace. Spoiler, the palace alert. Spoiler alert! But I think MI5 were on on her side on that, didn't, didn't yeah. Wilson have a file at MI5? But, they were convinced he was some there sort was of a Soviet file, guy. But I think he was, I think he was cleared. But I mean, it, you're right in saying that just give us a history lesson. I and mean, there's a great episode, I don't know if you've seen it yet, the, the, further on in the series about Aberfan, you know, the disaster in South Wales, and that is so heartbreaking. And one of the most moving aspects of it is that the Queen didn't go immediately to visit the survivors and to pay her respects to the community. She didn't understand why she should go. Why should she go there? And uh, at the end of the programme, it does say that the Queen regrets to this day that she didn't visit Aberfan when she should have done immediately. Uh, and Claudia, who's playing Harold Wilson? Who's playing Anthony Blunt? Is, is it still a stellar cast that we've got out there? So Jason Watkins is playing Harold Wilson, and he, he's brilliant. Oh, he's a great he, Yeah, he is a great actor. He's really good. An actor called Tobias Menzies plays Prince Philip, and he sounds just like him. You close your eyes, you would think it was him <laughs> he, talking. He's very good. There's a yeah. great scene in episode one where Tobias playing Philip has a sort of interaction, as it were, with Anthony Blunt, played by Samuel West, very well. And Blunt reminds Prince Philip that he has certain information. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Give us the information then, uh, Claudia. Hit or miss? Oh, hit. Big hit. 
What else have you been watching? So I've also been watching Anton Deck's DNA Journey. That's a two-parter that starts this Sunday. We're doing a documentary about DNA. I'm well up for this journey. Embarking on an emotional journey around the world. DNA alert! Join Anthony McPartlin and Declan Donnelly as they unearth their family history. There's an obvious well, Irish connection, but goodness me. Tracing their DNA matches both past. Your great-grandfather is an absolute hero. You'd start me crying. And present. Welcome to and Deck have been friends, have genuine friends, for 30 years. And this show sort of marks their friendship. But, I mean, they've basically just nicked Who Do You Think You Are from the BBC and done it with Anton Dex, but with a much bigger budget. So they travel all around the world looking into their past. They go to Ireland, they go to the USA, they meet relatives that they didn't know they had. Ant discovers that his great-grandfather was a war hero at the Somme, and Deck discovers that his great-great-grandfather was a deserter in the Crimean War. I think it's always important in this podcast to mention Danny Dyer as often as possible. Yeah. But Danny Dyer was related <laughs> to the Blooming King, wasn't he? No, that's the uh, thing. Uh, it's just his... Were they related to the No. no. He so set what's the, the bar so high, Danny Dyer, with that who do you think you are that I just nothing is ever going to compare. So, Ant and Deck DNA journey? <sighs> it's perfectly nice and it's perfectly charming and it's quite moving. Come on, Claudia. Parts. Hit or miss? Miss. <laughs> I like it. Brilliant. Thank you so much to Claudia and Baz. Now let's find out what they're gossiping about on the other side of the Atlantic and who else to tell us uh, but the male's own Jackie Stephen. Hello, Jackie. Hello, how are you? I'm very good. So uh, what's been going on over there? Well, it's now officially the start of award season and it's the period between November and February where all the important filmmakers start sending out their screeners to people and the voting starts in earnest. So for November alone, we've got the Gotham Awards, People's Choice Awards, Hollywood Film Awards, and then it really starts to increase then in December and January, uh, all then leading up to the Academy Awards you know, usually end of February or in March. And it's really begun in earnest. The nastiness is starting because it's very, very competitive. And Bob Iger of Disney has criticised Martin Scorsese now, who's just done The Irishman. He said that he's never seen a Marvel film. Now, this is because Scorsese attacked Marvel and said it's not really cinema. So this is when it all starts to get very interesting now because everyone's nitpicking everyone else's product. And, you you know, people have got to push their own movies. I think probably people have noticed back in the UK that uh, there's an election going on. It sounds a bit like an election campaign. Well, it, it really is an election campaign. And when you see the amount of money that's spent on promoting movies, it's really quite incredible. And Harvey Weinstein, who, of course, is not involved anymore, he used to spend so much money on just pushing his people all the time. And you sort of knew when Harvey was going to win because the attention around him was incredible. One of the things about the awards latterly has been that they have had a kind of political edge to them. There's been a lot of talk about whether they were representative, about whether uh, black actors ever got a chance to win them. Is that going to be a theme this time round or, or, or are we now happy that they are sufficiently diverse? I think there's always an element of tokenism and certainly some people win awards that shouldn't really win awards because it's politically correct for them to do so. So yes, we had that with black actors. Uh, I think that this year we're probably going to see a lot of things centred on the Me Too movement. 
you know, some men behaving badly in movies. It's certainly happening in television uh, productions. But the difficulty with the subject matter of the Me Too movement is that how do you portray on screen men harassing women? Because we don't really want to see that. So it's a kind of no-win situation. All the talk at the moment is very much of the Irishman, the Scorsese epic, which for me is too long. I still haven't seen it. I've tried, but... uh, yeah, four hours. That's a long time. I, so, don't even, I don't even want to do something I enjoy for four hours, let alone be forced to watch this. Uh, so The Irishman is the favourite, is it? That's the bookie's favourite. Actually, having said the bookie's favourite, do people gamble on, the, on who's going to win awards? Oh, yes. There's a lot of money spent on them. Uh, I usually bet on uh, the Oscars. I tend not to do the other ones. And uh, I think that Joker and the Irishman are probably the two that will be competing against each other. And uh, again, I haven't seen Joker because I have terror of clowns. It is a genuine issue. It is a genuine problem, uh, a fear of clowns. Well, You're not alone. A, if there was a movie with an Irish clown in it, that would be it. Oh, that would be finished. <laughs> Uh, Jackie Stephen, thanks so much for joining <laughs> Absolutely. us. Absolutely. Take care. And that's it this week from It's Friday. Thanks to all my guests and thank you too to you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at itsfriday at mailplus.co.uk. We'll be back next week and every week with your Mail Plus briefings at mailplus.co.uk. But for now, I'm Jim White. Goodbye. <laughs>